Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, good evening, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. We're very happy to have people in person. As was said, my name is Daniel Handler. I will be speaking with Daniel Sokach about his new book, Can We Talk About Israel? A Guide for the Curious, Confused, and Conflicted. Um, before jumping into our program, I will read a quick bio of Mr. Sokach. He has served as the CEO of the New Israel Fund since 2009. Before joining NIF, Daniel served as the Executive Director of the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco, the Peninsula, Marin, and Sonoma Counties. Prior to his tenure at the Federation, he was the founding Executive Director of the Progressive Jewish Alliance, now Ben the Ark. I feel like people are not going to say, who are you to write a book about Israel? But <laughs> what took you so long? Um, and in recognition of his leadership, Daniel has been named four times to the Forward Newspaper's Forward 50, an annual list of 50 leading Jewish decision makers and opinion shapers. Although I think it is safe to say that just because you have not been named to the list, you may still be a Jew who's done interesting things and thinks interesting things. Perhaps you've <laughs> contributed something to the history of the Gothic novel. And anyway, there's an argument. It's all that. who you know is what I'm trying to say and what you're uh, when you're in the Forward Forward 50. Um, but no, I am here, it may seem curious, besides the fact that I'm Jewish and I'm also named Daniel, that I would be chosen to uh, <laughs> moderate this conversation, but that's not why. Um, it is because uh, uh, Daniel and was, when I first met him, had this idea for this book, and uh, I uh, sometimes with what felt like fish hooks and long ropes uh, dragged it out of him. And... Um, uh, one of the bumps along the road was in Daniel finding a literary agent who might bring it to publication. And um, so I gave it to my literary agent and she said, uh, I don't, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to think about this. And I said, yeah, that's the book. That's the whole point. <laughs> there is um, on this topic, we're afraid to think about it. We're afraid to speak about it. We think many things that are uh, contradictory and yet uh, sit uneasily in the same mind in all of our minds. And I think um, that this book is a very, very elegant way of taking us through this extremely thorny issue that makes us not want to read about it. And uh, the book makes us want to read about it. And it's, I think, a um, extremely necessary and vital book. And I'm happy here to speak about it. So, hi. Hi, Thanks Daniel. for coming on our show today, Daniel. <laughs> um, I wanted to start with something um, that I read about yesterday. Uh, it's, it's a news item that I feel is among many news items that could fill this slot that fills us with this kind of panicky... Uh, contradictory uh, anger and nervousness. Um, the University of Toronto's uh, Scarborough Campus Student Union, as part of a general support for Palestinian rights and the BDS movement, the Boycott Divest uh, Sanctions movement, passed a notion this week where they pledged only to order kosher food from caterers who, and I'm quoting here, do not normalize Israeli apartheid. And... Uh, I bring this up because your book is a guide for the curious, confused, and conflicted. And when I read a news story like this, I feel curious, confused, and conflicted because I feel um, attacked and put on the spot, but I also feel um, sympathetic and engaged with the impetus behind such decisions. 
So let's talk about this. What would you say to the Scarborough uh, student, campus student union over up there at the University of Toronto? Uh, well, first of all, <laughs> good evening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> You'd start there. <laughs> Always. Uh, Adam and crew, thank you for having me here. This I've done already probably 25 book events since the book came out last month, um, all of which have been virtual. And this is the first live one um, that we've done and virtual. And thank you, everyone, for for tuning in out there. But I have to say, it just feels great to be in a room with people to talk about anything, let alone the book. So uh, I'm grateful to the Commonwealth Club and really to you all for for schlepping out to talk about it now. Yeah. Well, I could easily just avoid that question and move on to something else. Sure. Pivoting um, dexterously. Look, (laughs) the. um, The working title f- for this book for, for much of its um, uh, much of the period when I was writing it uh, was one that I came up with as kind of a joke and, and didn't like, um, but, I, but it made a point. And the, and the working title was, you'll, you'll, you'll forgive me uh, for the mild profanity or the implication of profanity. It was Israel WTF. Why one small country drives so many sane people crazy. And and I think that your opening scenario is a terrific example of um, the shortest answer because of things like that. Yeah. Right. And what you described um, feeling, right? You said that what happened at University of Toronto makes me feel angry and targeted and also sort of sympathetic and confused and and conflicted, if not curious. And I, I think that. Um, there are any number of scenarios that could make any number of people, whether they are uh, Jewish Americans, Arab Americans, Palestinians and Israelis, uh, liberal Christians, evangelical Christians. There are any number of scenarios that put people when it comes to this debate, um, this conversation about Israel in that position of feeling simultaneously sympathetic, attacked, curious, conflicted. And and so, you know, I think what I would say to the people I mean, which people are we talking about at the <laughs> University of Toronto? But, you know, I think what, what I would say to people who find themselves on in the midst of one of those conversations, whether on one of the sides of the debate or watching it horrified or amused or bemused from the sidelines is slow down. Um, you have to know what you're talking about before you start talking about it. And that's sort of the point of the book, right? Um, th- th- yeah. Th- there are so few. Well, it's not the only topic about which people feel in- incredibly strongly. They have uh, powerful emotional um, reactions and feelings. Uh, but those powerful emotional reactions and feelings are often not grounded in a good understanding of what we're actually talking about. And I would suspect that um, the partisans, the, the the people on the extremes of most of the debates on college campuses, not all of them, um, and and around dinner tables and Thanksgiving tables and Shabbat tables, often are similarly people who um, who feel very strongly and who know one part of the story, but like the you know the parable of the blind men and the elephant, they know only that one part of the story. They are sure that what they are encountering is a leg of an elephant or a trunk of an elephant, and that is the whole elephant. But um, but the book is an attempt to have people calm down, step back and try to see the elephant. And so, I mean, I think for American Jews, which I suspect is a large portion of today's audience, uh, both in the room and um, online, I think 
that I think of my own childhood and that being taught a very simple lesson about Israel, basically, that um, <clears throat> it was that I was raised to love Israel, I would say, unabashedly, and that it was a long overdue solution to a diaspora that culminated in the Holocaust. And that was the I think that was the straightforward narrative. And um, what do you if you were starting to explain Israel to children now, if you were going to take young uh, Jewish children or any children and try to explain it, what would, what's the, what should I have heard? Well, um, with my own young Jewish children um, and other kids that I've spoken to Jewish and not um, young and less young, you know, my approach is as it would be with, with, with adults, Jewish and not Jewish is to urge people to, look at and try to understand the two stories. There are more than two stories, but for our purposes, the two narratives that are most dominant in this story, right? That of the Jewish people who, who come to Israel after a millennium of horrific persecution and, um, and, you know, before, during, and then in the wake of um, the Holocaust, right? The most unimaginably horrific chapter in modern history um, to understand with compassion uh, that story, while at the same time understanding with equal amounts of compassion the story of people who happened to be living in that place, right? Um, who were utterly displaced by by um, by by the Jews who fled um, persecution in Europe, right? Again, in the hundred years, uh, well, in the in the decades before, during, and after the Holocaust, and and in that sense, what I would urge them to do, um, these kids, is to look at the image I, I write about in the book. Actually, um, as you may recall, uh, in the section in which I'm talking to a group of of kids um, about this, you know, uh, I I often use the metaphor used by the late great Israeli uh, novelist and peace activist Amos Oz, who said the justification for Israel, for Zionism, he said, but that's a loaded word, which we can unpack later. But the justification for Israel, Oz said, wrote, is the justification of a drowning person who swims to a plank floating in the sea. And uh, and clings to it, even though there's already someone there clinging to that plank. And Oz writes, the person is justified to 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 save himself on that plank, even if he has to shove the first person over a little bit to make room. But he doesn't have the right to shove the first person into the sea. And and to me that that sort of captures everything. And as I, as as um, as as I spoke with these kids at my kids' summer camp some years ago. Uh, Camp Tawanga, for those of you in the house, um, you know, a, 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 an 11 year old kid listening to this conversation where I had to do exactly what you asked me um, said, well, wait a minute. It's kind of like my family has always lived in this land and we've always lived in this house and we never really thought about who owned it a thousand years ago, but we've lived here for generations. And one day we come back from working our fields and we see that and he points to the boy next to him. This kid and his family are in half of our house. And we say, what are you doing in our house? And the kid says to me, well, we come from far away. But once upon a time, we lived here and everyone in our village was murdered except for us. They burned our village down. They kicked us out. No other country would take us. So we came back to this house. And he said, is that kind of like what happened? And I said, Brandon, because his <laughs> name was Brandon. Uh, that's exactly what happened. And I feel that, you know, if, if, if a kid from Walnut Creek and Israel's, you know, um, greatest novelist 
can can understand that then then we all can un- understand that and that's how i would speak to the to to the young daniel handler um and do you think what perhaps pernicious and perhaps inadvertent effects do you think um we can see in having the wrong message pushed for so long yeah well right i mean it's it's so tough because people are so afraid of what happens if you tell people the whole story Right. Um, but Brandon's an example of a kid who heard the whole story briefly. Right. In an in informal education in the Sierras near Yosemite. And he didn't he didn't suddenly say, well, this is all a lie. Right. He sort of understood what it was. So I think that there are perceived dangers to telling the truth. But in my opinion, they um, they pale next to the real dangers of not telling the truth about about the history of this conflict and what really happened and then watching kids get older and, and realize that what they were told um, feels like a whitewash. And the example I always think of uh, is, is, is one that happened to me and I'm sure it happened to many of you, certainly people in my generation, but it's going to be very different for you as it was for my kids when they got to high school and college. Right. And that was, you know, getting to college and, and getting into debates um, with people. And I remember in, I did my junior year abroad and I was in Ireland, as you know, and, um, great year. Uh, I write about it in the book. Um, um, that's really what I'd like to talk about tonight. But I remember, um, having a conversation with, with kids who were holding a protest against Israel. And in 1988, that was not something that we were used to on campuses anywhere. Certainly not Brandeis University, um, but you know they were they were talking about Deir Yassin and they had pictures, horrible pictures of a massacre. And I said, "What is this?" And they said, "Well, this was Deir Yassin. This is when Zionist uh, militants went into a village next to Jerusalem and they murdered everyone. They massacred everyone in in Israel's War of Independence." And I said to myself, "Well, that's clearly not true, because there's absolutely no way that the Israel that I learned about." from reading Exodus by Leon Uris and seeing an extremely handsome Paul Newman, right? Like every rainy day at summer camp, we saw that. Um, and then from my own informal education, like that is, was obviously not true. Um, and it wasn't until I grew up a bit and, you know, made it my business in graduate school to study this and learn it, that I realized it was a hundred percent true. And it in fact happened just as they said it had happened. Um, and what would have happened if I had been educated about this and had been told, you know, in the wake of that horrific massacre, when Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt, right, wrote an open letter to the New York Times decrying this and saying Jews around the world should be ashamed and should never support, wait for it, Menachem Begin, the leader of one of the militant groups. Um, and, and, and in reaction, David Ben-Gurion, right, the, the, the founding father of Israel, uh, crushed the militant groups uh, and, and disarmed them to the point where he ordered uh, his forces, led by a young Yitzhak Rabin, to sink a ship off the coast of Tel Aviv, smuggling arms to the militant groups. So if I had learned that history, I would have been able to have that conversation in a different kind of way. But when my kids get to college and they hear about Deir Yassin and no one in our informal education system has has told them about it, just like like it was for me 35 years ago, when they get to college, they go online and they see that it was true and they think, oh, so you all lied to me. Right. You lied to me at Hillel and you lied to me at summer camp and you lied to me at Sunday school and you lied to me at Hebrew school. And and that 
I think is the danger. That's a very long answer to your no. short question. Yeah. That danger is far worse, I think, than telling people Israel is a complicated place and subject like our own country. And it's worth wrestling with. And it's worth understanding warts and all. But if you whitewash it, it's going to backfire. Um, so I would agree with that. I would also think that it seems to me that sometimes the contradictory um, ideas that we're holding about Israel are more contradictory than, say, here we are in America, which also has a bloody and <clears throat> violent history that you know, is going more acknowledged, I would say, in this generation than it has ever been, but has never been acknowledged enough. And I don't think there, I would assume anyone here who grew up in America has received um, informal history lessons that turned out not to be accurate. Right. Um, but that the, it, it feels to me as Americans that those issues are more easily separated and more easily um, put to rest. We're not there yet, but it feels like a possibility. And sometimes the ideas in Israel feel so directly <clears throat> contradictory. It reminds me actually that I, a million years ago when I went to look for apartments, before you could look for apartments online, you went into an agency and they had this Venn diagram on the wall that said, great apartment, great location, like reasonable rent. And you could only have two of those things in the Venn diagram. It was a reminder that you couldn't look for a perfect situation. And when I think about Israel and I think about a democratic state, which seems so essential and something that I believe in very strongly, and a Jewish state, which is something that seems essential about Israel's founding and an idea worth preserving, that how, how is it possible to reconcile those two ideas? Are there all those ideas actually contradictory? Well, your Venn diagram is even more analogous because there you had three things, right? right. Good location, nice place, good rent, yeah. right? And and of course, when it comes to uh, Israel, it, it's not just democratic state, Jewish homeland or haven for the Jewish people. There's a third piece, which is since 1967, Israel has controlled, uh, but not annexed, uh, ter- mostly not annexed, territory that contains... Uh, at this point in time, uh, millions and millions of people, right? Almost 3 million on the West Bank, almost 3 million in Gaza uh, and the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And it controls their lives and those people to, to varying degrees. And those people have, are, have, have not received any of the benefits of citizenship or civil rights. So the Venn diagram with Israel is you can be, I would argue, um, and so did David Ben-Gurion when he came out of self-imposed <laughs> retirement in July 1967 to a think tank in Jerusalem. And the country was just elated because of the victory in the Six Day War that put them in this position. And he said, and spoiler alert, nobody listened to him. They didn't want to listen to him. And he was no uh, dove Ben-Gurion. Yeah. He was a tough, you know, dude. But he said, look, we have to give this back. Uh, even if there's no one to whom we really can make peace with right now, we have to give it back. Um, or we will no longer be able to be a, 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 a country that is a homeland for the Jewish people and a democracy. We're going to be something else. And he didn't say it, but I would say there's a word for that arrangement, but it isn't in Hebrew and it isn't in English and it isn't in Arabic, right? That word is in Afrikaans. And Ben-Gurion saw it in July, 1967. So on the one hand, um, I suppose that's the easy answer. Well, right. no easy answer to your question, but there is an answer to your question that every Israeli prime minister, interestingly, right, um, from from the moment Yitzhak Rabin makes the decision uh, in 1992, 93, 
um, <clears throat> every Israeli premier except Mr. Netanyahu, and we don't know about the current occupant, has has arrived at the same conclusion. Y- you can have two of those three points of identity on your apartment Venn diagram, uh, but you can't have all three. Y- you got to choose whether you want to be a Jewish country that controls all these people and all this land, but then you won't be a democracy, or you'll be a democracy and control all these people and all this land, but eventually you won't be a Jewish country. And then the last remaining option, the one that Ben-Gurion put forward, which is, I think, the one that could maybe save us from all feeling like uh, an emotional and intellectual pretzel, right, is the one where Israel does what Ben-Gurion said. And the question now is, is that still a possibility? Is it, is it too late for that? You know, I would submit that, that the biggest obstacle is a lack of political will, not politi- political imagination. And I think that, like, you know, one of my publicists is here, Lauren, um, and, we, and we often laugh because... Um, the most critical reviews that the book gets are from people who sort of say he's too hopeful, you know, and, and, and he's too even handed. That was Lauren's favorite uh, podcast. I said he's they called me irritatingly even handed. But I, but I think that, like, I'm very proud. I mean, of, it is irritating. It is. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's less satisfying. But I guess, the, you know, the the I, I think that's the way out of that conundrum is is Israel. Um, coming to the recognition and realizing as it sort of has in fits and starts, but then it goes back, right? That there is no future this way. And I suspect that would make it a lot easier for everybody else, right? Um, to untie themselves from, from that, that pretzel. But I think like to your original point about how this makes us feel, um, maybe you don't want to go there, but I'll just, I'll put out there that like, I do think what's different about this than, than America. And by the way, like for those of us in the room, I mean, I think that for a lot of African-Americans and Native Americans, it does feel as much as a, as a crazy making, you know, emotionally laden exercise as Israel does for so many people. But for for so many people, Israel feels different because, you know, there really was an existential threat to the Jewish people in the lifetime of people sitting in this room. Right. Not ancient history like my mom, you know, who is. Maybe or maybe not watching from Washington, D.C. My wife is shaking her head. She's not watching. No. Um, right. So so there are people in this room with us today who were kids when every Jew in the world was facing the threat of murder from Hitler. So so that's very real. And 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 we not just that generation, but those of us who've come after have an understandable kind of communal post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of what was a real thing in living memory and so too Palestinians who really remember being forced out at gunpoint, right, from from their homes and, and disenfranchised. And then you go and you look at how, I mean, this, this is what it gets really interesting. And this was the original title of the book, as you may recall. Yes. Um, you know, what gets really interesting is the way that I just came, I was just in the UK. I, I slipped in between Delta and the new one, right? So, um, and... And so were you. Yeah. And uh, and one of the things that was so interesting was to sort of have conversations with with people in the the British New Israel Fund community who who face very different sets of challenges than, than we do here. I'm not assuming everyone is in that community in this room, but I happen to know that many of you are. Um, but, you know, there um, the, the the they 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 sort of say. And look at look what happens here in Europe, where otherwise liberal, open hearted sane liberals, you know, channel this level of invective and opprobrium towards Israel in the way that they didn't, don't towards China or Iran or Syria or Pakistan. Right. And they will say, and, you know, that's not unrelated to the fact that in living memory, it was their parents and grandparents who were actually either committing or facilitating 
right, the murder of the Jews, or, you know, in many cases, not letting them into their country. So, and then you look at the Christian Zionists in this country, who, by the way, are not a fringe group, but who are a mainstream evangelical uh, fundamentalist group of, 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 of uh, Protestantism who boast as their most prominent members, the immediate past vice president and past secretary of state um, who believe in a theological teleological end times, you know, idea in which Israel and the Jews have to play a role. And so if all of those things don't make us crazy, right? Like then, then, then what would make us crazy? Yeah. Well, they do make us crazy. Yeah, that's my point. <laughs> that, you asked, why is it that it does it? And that's the yeah. why. <laughs> well, <laughs> and so because you um, led us here, how do, how do we, so often, I think Jews feel that extra attention on Israel, and it feels very convenient for... Um, uh, for one form or another of anti-Semitism, it feels enthreaded in there that um, when there is a protest at at any university, yeah. that that our own defensive reaction, fair and unfair, I think, is why is this? Why is there a protest about this, and not so many places where other terrible things are happening, and that um, we feel called upon to defend that in a way that we don't see our, our brothers and sisters from other places being called upon to defend it. And, and yet so many of the accusations seem fair. And um, I think the defense of, oh yeah, but it's, it was really horrible over there and you never complain about that is never a very strong one when you're having a political argument. Yeah. Because you can't talk of everything simultaneously and be upset about everything simultaneously. What about-ism? They call yeah. It. Right. And so how do, I mean, but I think both those things are there. Yeah. I think, I think a genuine uh, over-examination of the Jewish state over other places and um, a perfectly natural flashpoint for bona fide political protests are going on. So how do we, how do we work within both those forces that are happening? Yeah. Well, there's a chapter in the, the the way I arranged the book was the, the first part of the book is, is a, 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 what I hope is a digestible history, um, because I really believe, as, as you can tell, that, and as I said earlier, in order to really know what you're talking about, you probably should try to know what you're talking about a bit. Um, and then the second part of the book goes deep into some of the more difficult and controversial issues that cause people to feel so uh, upset about, about this. And then I thread throughout it sort of personal anecdotes and stories about my own journey um, and, and experiences. Uh, but in one of the chapters in part two, which I call the other A word, the A word, the cha- there's a chapter that, bless you, called the A word, which is about Israel and the accusation of apartheid. And the next chapter, the other A word is about anti-Semitism in Israel. And I begin that chapter um, paraphrasing myself because I don't remember exactly by saying, <laughs> is, is criticism of Israel anti-Semitic? And, and I answer no. Um, and then parenthetically, except when it is. And then I said, is, 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 um, is being an anti-Zionist anti-Semitic, you know, and I write no. And then parenthetically, except when it is. So, right. So that it's really hard to figure out what's going on in those situations. Right. I will say a few things, um, among friends, even though we may all not agree on all of these things, you know, one of the ways I think that we have to understand criticism of Israel is what I said earlier that, you know, 
a lot of people feel a lot of guilt about what happened to the Jews. And sometimes for all kinds of reasons, when Israel acts like a bad state actor, um, you know, like a lot of bad state actors, and there are plenty worse, right? Um, it receives a, a level, a singularity of focus that feels wrong to many of us. It does to me, right? Um, and, and, and like the Potter Stewart definition of pornography, sometimes you know it when you see it. The problem is, um, the problem is it's really tough because there is an industry, you know, quite literally in, 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 you know, there, there is, there is a, until recently, there was a ministry in the Israeli government devoted to sort of this fight and to propping up a particular perspective on it. And that, that effort is often echoed and reinforced by the institutions of American and, 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 uh, and European Jewish communities, um, which is to say any criticism of Israel is labeled as anti-Semitic, right? So that doesn't help. Right. Um, what also doesn't help is the fact that uh, those other countries that you're mentioning, and here I'm not talking about University of Toronto, let's talk about right here at home, right? They are not the recipient of more United States aid than all other countries combined, right? As, as is Israel most years. Um, they do not, China, Pakistan, Iran, um, Syria, Iraq, bad state actors, they do not declare themselves to be a free, open, democratic country, which Israel does. Right. And and uh, so that all of those factors, the guilt that many people feel, which creates a kind of perverse joy at catching out the Jews in Israel for behaving badly. Um, the fact that um, the defenders of Israel have labeled all criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic, making it difficult to figure out which criticism of Israel actually is anti-Semitic and which is perfectly legitimate. Um, and the fact that Israel actually claims a lot right in in terms of what it claims to be what it wants to be what it sees itself as being a democracy right um and 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 the and when you receive more aid than any other country it's understandable that american citizens who foot the bill for that aid feel like well i do get a say right because i pay for this i mean right and and so i think that for all those reasons it becomes really hard um to figure out what's going on what i try to do in the chapter is provide a little mini toolkit to navigate when criticism of Israel crosses the line into anti-Semitism. And um, I'll just give a shout out to uh, to Rabbi Jill Jacobs, who runs uh, an organization called Trua, which is a, a rabbinic human rights organization, who wrote a terrific piece, which I credit uh, and talk about and, and add on to in the book in the Washington Post, trying to do just that. So, um, so instead of Potter Stewart, I know it when you see it, you now have me and Jill trying to help you figure out when yeah. that criticism becomes <laughs> illegitimate. I'm glad that you have a better pedigree than identifying pornography is the way of going through. <laughs> um, I'm going to uh, um, read you a question that has been brought up from the audience because I feel this, this is right at the heart of what we're talking about right now. Um, uh, someone writes, uh, Israel is the most democratic state, the most diverse state in the region. Um, it isn't perfect, but please explain why you choose now to present your theories, and which I think is often, often a yeah. response that we hear, right? And so, and on one hand, we can say, we can find um, an element of hypocrisy that is particularly upsetting to say, when you declare yourself to be this and you're behaving in this way, it's, it's more upsetting to us. But I think there's also um, a sense of things are so fragile now. Yeah. This is happening now. Is this the time to wrestle with this? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say, I just love that these questions are coming live 
Like yeah. I love seeing someone collecting questions. This just in. The, it's really like such a yeah. relief. Uh, look, I mean, I think that, right, we, we I, I, I sort of, I think, tried to answer some of that, not knowing that question was coming. You know, um, the, the now issue, um, my wife, who is also sitting right here, used to always say when we were thinking about having kids, and I would say like, well, is it the right time? And she was like, it's never the right time to have kids. And I feel like um, to that strangely, that logic also applies here. And one of the reasons why it seems apt to me is like, you know, I'm a person who's loved this place. This is just my opinion. Right. And been totally emotionally connected to and attached to it for my, since I'm 16 years old. And, um, when I was in college and I sort of became the person who I am when it came to my positions on this place and how I felt about it as a person who I would proudly de- describe myself as a as a progressive or liberal, you know, pro-Israel person, as a liberal Zionist. Um, it, it seemed to me that that um, dissent and and um, patriotic constructive criticism, what in the Jewish tradition we call tochecha, right, loving rebuke, was like it, it it was I was incredulous to uh, to believe to hear that that wasn't appropriate. And the problem with the now argument is when I was 16 years old, it was 1984. And I was told then, not now, right? You can't say that now. And when I was in college in 1987, when the first intifada broke out, and um, again, my brilliant wife and you both told me, don't put this in the book. So I didn't, but I'm going to say it here. Um, you know, Woody Allen. Okay, but this is before. It was before, right? Woody, Woody Allen wrote this uh, letter to the editor in the New York Times. Does anyone remember this? I went back and found it and reread it. It made such a huge impression on me. And this is when we all still liked him we, before we knew, right? And he, he, wrote, he wrote this kind of heartbroken op-ed or letter to the editor in which, to the Times in which he said, I can't believe what I'm seeing on the news. Like I always put my money in the little pushkis. I love Israel. I'm so proud of Israel, but I'm watching it. You're breaking people's arms because they're throwing stones. You know, you're, 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 you're bashing their heads in uh, because they don't, they don't, want to be, um, you know, stop the checkpoints and they don't want to see these settlements continue to grow. This isn't the Israel I thought I knew. And he was told in 1987, not now. You can't say that now. And then, you know, uh, you see where I'm going with this answer. Yeah. Right. So every I'll, I'll stop there and to say every step of the way, um, people who have wanted to offer loving criticism of Israel are told not now it's dirty laundry. Israel's too vulnerable. I really sympathize and, and empathize with the feeling behind that, that concern. But I don't think it works, right? And I think that, um, again, tochecha, like loving rebuke, or what we would call tough love, friends not letting, letting friends drive drunk, that, that's what it means to be in relationship with a person or a place, is to sort of say, from a place of love and support, right? Uh, I think you got to change. And I'll tell you w- one example um, in, in response to the, the question, Jimmy Carter is a person who is still pilloried in some corners of the Jewish community for, for the fact that he strong-armed Menachem Begin and to a lesser degree Anwar Sadat um, during 13 days at Camp David in the late 1970s to come to a peace agreement. Egypt, with the possible exception now of Iran, is in the history of the state of Israel, the only country that posed an existential threat to Israel that could have in terribly different circumstances actually posed an existential threat to Israel. 
Menachem Begin did not want to sign the Camp David Agreement because he did not want to give up the Sinai settlements. Israel began building a Jewish settlements also in the Sinai, not just the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem and the Golan after the Six-Day War. He didn't want to give them up. But Carter said to his cabinet and to his advisors, look, there's no future for this place if it doesn't get rid of this. Like it's going to be at war forever and it's going to build out these settlements. And as he said many decades later in a book which gained him no love, it will. he, he wrote a book called is a Palestine colon peace, not apartheid in which he argued it seemed radical then 15 years ago or 20 years ago, maybe not now two state solution is the only way forward. He argued, well, that's what he was arguing in camp David. And for that, he received, you know, the, the undying animosity of many people in the Jewish community. But Jimmy Carter spoke truth to Israel. He even pushed Israel beyond what it wanted to do. And not a single Israeli soldier has died fighting an Egyptian. Not a single Israeli civilian um, has died as a result of an Egyptian air raid since, since uh, 1973, right? So I, I guess I would answer, the time will always be wrong to sort of try to say the right thing. Um, uh, thank you. you uh, your book um, describes such moments as the... Um, that's what you've been telling us now. It, it's true you didn't put Woody Allen in it for reasons I think we all understand. Because um, you and Dana told me I couldn't put Woody Allen in it. Uh, if you listened to me more, everything would be better. Um, <laughs> your book in general, though, takes, I would say, elegantly and uh, quickly through um, Israel's history in order to place kind of current turmoil in necessary context. But I guess to push back on that plan a little bit, if only as a platform for you to speak more about it. Um, <laughs> how much history is necessary? At what point does um, digging through old conflict weigh us down more than it moves us forward? You know, because it, it, it often feels to me, if you dig into any historical conflict, you end up with generations of pain and suffering. And at what point do you say, this is not something that we're going to be able to go back and untangle there. This is something that we have to start now with. So what, um, how, how crucial do you think knowing this history is of the region to understanding what we might do? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and I sort of have a quick two-part answer, right? And the first part is, as I've said earlier, I think if you don't understand the real trauma um, that resulted from the real recent and and, and not recent history of the Jewish people, then it seems to the observer, and this is what we see at some college campuses and in some of the discourse now, that, you know, Israel, and we hear the frame again and again um, these days, it's just a settler colonial project that went into uproot an indigenous population. And of course, that's not why um, the Jews went to, to Palestine, Israel. They definitely went to secure a homeland for the Jewish people, but that wasn't because of some notion of manifest destiny right. or some notion, by the way, it was not because of some notion that we were the chosen people and it was ours. That did come. It came later, mostly after 67. They went because, you know, in the words of my daughter, Noah, after my wife and I took the kids to the Anne Frank house, you know, and she, and we sat down to process it, uh, when they were much younger and Noah said, but, but why didn't Anne and her family go to America? And we explained why. Or England or, or any of the good countries, she said. And we said because none of the good countries would take them in. So if you don't know that, then I understand why you would think, you know, Israel should be targeted for all the things that people want to target it for. Right. And similarly, 
if you buy the line that you hear um, from propagandists on the other side, that there's no such thing as a Palestinian people. And they were, you know, people have actually said to me, right? Like, to me, you would have to like really have some chutzpah to say this to me. Like, well, you know, the Palestinians, they just came a century ago. And, you know, this is like a ahistorical uh, nonsense, but, but, but there's an industry out there to promote that belief too. Then you could understand why, you know, they're really just a bunch of um, terrorist agents who were set, sent in, you know, at the last minute. Like, so, right. so I think it's important to understand the history, to identify, to both understand the need to empathize with both parties to this conflict and to call out the BS and understand what the nonsense is. That that's part one. And part two is an area where you and I might actually disagree. Um, a conversation that we've been having in drips and drabs over the years. I think when you bury the past, um, it, it, you're the expert on horror books and, and scary things. Yeah. When you bury the past, it tends to come up and, come back and get you. And I am a true believer in the disinfectant quality of sunlight and of truth and reconciliation processes and in historical accounting and honesty. And I've not seen a place, right? Not even in South Africa itself, right? You know, the fear was if we change and if we admit what's happening, they'll, they'll murder us all. They'll drive us out. But, and that's not what happened, right? And it's not what happened in the Central American countries that went through truth and reconciliation processes. So I think that, like, I do understand, and again, empathize and sympathize with this idea that if you tinker around too much in the past, then you're just going to um, create a situation like Northern Ireland where you have 500 years of people kind of fetishizing that past. But once Northern Ireland engaged in something like a truth and reconciliation process, that was part of ending the conflict there. So... I'm, I'm, I'm firmly in belief that it's best to talk about Yeah, I don't think we're in disagreement about that. Well, it was that, more actually. fun to make you a straw man uh, of yeah. disagreement. No, yeah. I understand that. Yeah. And I, and I think... Uh, Why do you want to bury the past, Daniel? <laughs> I think your book lays bare, I think, what feels like an important universal truth that so often the accidental feels inevitable. And mm. when the accidental feels inevitable then things feel like they can't change because why would they change? They've been this way forever. And when you realize that they have not been that way forever, that they didn't have to be that way forever, that you, you see more flexibility in the world than, than the world can confront you with when you're looking at it. So that's a beautiful point. Thank you. Thanks. Saying that. Um, uh, on that, uh, uh, I think on this, this is an interesting question that, uh, had not occurred to me when reading your book. Um, how important is it that Israel be in the location that it is the most mm. disruptive place on earth for it to be? Yeah. Well, a lot of people here probably know that in the history of the early Zionist movement, um, and I'm talking, you know, uh, mid late 19th century, all kinds of ideas were floated about where Israel, um, could be. And, and in yeah, fact, not that many years ago, my uh, wife and I met a man who owns a great deal of land in Virginia. And he just was like, I'll give it like, <laughs> I think he was very eager to talk to you. He was like, tell them. You know, and I was like, it's not really how it works. We're, we're kind of a mafia and we're kind of not, but I definitely can't get everybody to move to Virginia. I don't have that kind of sway. Well, I mean, Israel is a country on a political knife's edge, much like our own. But let's say that half of the nine million people are kind of liberal minded. Let's even say it's a third. If you have three million people, right, and we say you can all come to Wyoming, right, and Montana, you know, the Republicans love the Israelis. We get the liberal Israelis to move there, Jew and Arab alike. And then we have four new democratic senators. No. So like, but look, I, 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 
I mean, there were lots of early Zionist thinkers who actually didn't really care that much where Israel, what they saw was the need for um, Jewish self-determination in an age defined by 19th century nationalism and the desire for self-determination, right? And um, as the Zionists were prescient, right? They were thought to be insane by most of us, but they were right. Their analysis as late, as early as the 1880s was, it's going to end badly in Europe. And they thought Jewish self-determination is the only answer. And what's so crazy, back to your, like, what makes us all feel like, ah, you know, because it, because they were right, right? Um, that they, they were also correct in assessing that that was really the only answer. I mean, it, it didn't have to be, to your, you know, point a moment ago. Yeah. If, if, if America had said, no, you can all come here, or Canada, or Australia, any of the good countries. But given the restraints, that was the only answer. And they didn't care where it was, some of them, the early ones. And in fact, there were huge debates at the early Zionist Congresses. And Herzl himself, the, the sort of most um, known early Zionist figure, he sort of played with other ideas. And so everything from, um, it, they call it Uganda, but it was really British East Africa, probably now what is Kenya. That wouldn't have turned out very well. Um, you know, uh, people talked about Madagascar. There were all kinds of conversations about different places. Ultimately, the power the unifying power for, for those of you who are not uh, Jewish in the room every every uh, year at Passover at the at the you know at the uh, the Passover holiday we conclude the seder the, the traditional meal by saying next year in Jerusalem and the and the Jewish prayer book is full of references to Israel and Zion and Jerusalem so it really was like you know they were great um, PR people they understood that right. like th- that was the thing that could unify people so they they sort of won out but um but I'm reminded of a joke I had as many people in my generation had in their homes growing up the big book of Jewish humor, right? There we go. And uh, there was a joke that I always thought was so wild. Um, And it, and it, it's God talking to Moses and God says, Moses, you know, you've been such a great servant. I'm going to give you people a country and you can have any country in the world. Which one do you want? And Moses we learn from the actual Torah had a speech impediment, right? He uh, often thought to be a stutter. It's like one of the few descriptions of who he was. He didn't, he had a speech impediment. So in the joke, God says, I'll give you any country you want. And Moses says, I'm taking Canada. And, but he can't get it out. He's stuttering. And God hears that first syllable, kuh, kuh, kuh. And he says, you want Canaan? All right. I don't know why, but you can have it. So, I mean, I don't know if it's practical, you know, your solution of moving them to your friend's place in Virginia um, is practical, but, but, uh, but, but, you know, the answer is, um, that's where history, uh, that's where history arrived at that place, at that moment, at that time. You know, again, if 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 FDR in nineteen, you know, thirty five had said, "Look, I'm opening the doors to total Jewish immigration," in my opinion, the yeshuv, the pre state Jewish community in Palestine, which was tiny even then, right, would have ultimately probably shriveled up and and blown away. But that's not how it worked. Right. Um, so speaking of. Um... American presidents who have done things wrong. Um, Do you feel... I felt reading your book um, and rereading parts of it uh, today um, that the perhaps a strange silver lining of the Trump era was that to watch, to feel that our country's democracy threatened made... um, the precariousness of democracy and the direness of threats to democracy that much clearer when looking at, at Israel. I think a lot of the, um, 
a lot of the debate around Israel strays from democracy because we are because there's so many things to make us crazy. Yeah. And I'm curious if you think that that a threat to democracy here has is a can be a clarifying tonic in a way to look at what's happening in Israel. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I have um, a colleague with whom I work uh, here. And, and I think what we all found at New Israel Fund internationally was that something happened in, in 2016 where the job of being um, the professional team of the New Israel Fund, and I'm sure many of, of our supporters who are our great ambassadors felt the same way, it suddenly was clarified and made easier in a way that we couldn't have possibly imagined because previously people who said, again, you know, why are you airing dirty laundry or, or more... Or, or more prevalently, it can't be true what you're saying, right? It can't be. That's not the story of Israel I know. You just told me that Israel passed a law that um, that that f- forbids Arab Israeli in, in schools and institutions and community centers from commemorating the events of May 1948 as the Nakba, the catastrophe, and a, a, a law. That says if they do that, they'll lose funding. You you made it up. It can't be true. And by the way, I didn't make it up. It is true. Um, after Trump's election, that kind of disappeared. And so and I think around the world, like when I speak with human rights um, uh, activists who work on other areas, we all talk to each other. Um, you know, this was something universally that was found. And what was really poignant, I remember speaking to a Russian human rights activist who now works at an American Foundation and she said, you know, uh, the, the you know, she said in all the horror of this moment of the Trump Putin kind of disinformation, illiberal democracy moment, at least she said, you understand that we're not crazy. And uh, and so, yeah, I think it was very clarifying. And then uh, this is, um, I believe, from someone in our virtual audience. Hello, virtual people. Um, shifting then the focus to the American left, do you, has the social justice movement in the United States damaged um, Israel or, and or the view of Israel? Well, I, I don't know, or I, I guess I don't think that the social justice movement in the United States has damaged Israel, but I do think that there are parts of the social justice movement in the United States that um, don't, know what they're doing when it comes to Israel. Um, you know, and I, I'm saying that live, right, on right. On, on, on recorded uh, video. Um, I think we have a real problem, right? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm often accused of, of uh, all kinds of things uh, that people think are detrimental to Israel. So here's something, I reject those accusations. But, you know, here, <laughs> but, but I do see on the American left and on the European left a growing... Um, intolerance born of, frankly, the kind of ignorance I'm trying to confront in the book um, about Israel and about its role. And I think a good example of that is something that happened, um, that is happening over the last 24 hours. Jamal Bowman, a very progressive congressman from New York City, who, by the way, replaced a long-sitting uh, I believe Jewish member of Congress who was a great favorite of the Jewish community, but demographics are changing. He's a black guy. Um, he is sort of uh, associated with the left wing of the party, and he's part of the Democratic Socialists of America. But he's also a really smart guy. And he went on a, on a CODEL, a congressional delegation, two weeks ago with J Street to Israel-Palestine. And he, and he met with NIF grantees and activists. They would all send me the pictures of the selfies he took with them. Uh, he's a very charismatic, really smart guy. 
Um, and he has been quite forthright in his criticism of Israeli policy. But the Democratic Socialists of America are are involved in a internal civil war the last 24 hours as one faction is demanding that he be kicked out of the DSA because he went with J Street, right, which is the Zionist lobby. And um, I saw something I never thought I would see today. Uh, dozens of tweets from Palestinian activists saying, are you people out of your mind? Right. Like these are not this. These are not the enemies. So I, 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 I think that in that sense, there's a real problem going on. Um, and it's predicated in no small part on on people not really taking the time to understand what is different and what is similar about these two situations. Um, we are um, running out of time, but I wanted to talk before we go for a minute about despair, because I love talking about despair. Um, and um, in uh, our friendship, I, early on, I was struck by a difference between us where sometimes we get together and I say, um, everything's a complete nightmare because of this tiny, completely invisible thing that is happening in a small aspect of children's book publishing in America. And that you would say, no, everything's going fine based on my work with the Israel-Palestinian <laughs> conflict that's been going on. Um, so one of us is right. But um, you're probably right. But I mean, but as you mentioned, your book has gotten some um, some criticism. Uh, I mean, I think it's too easy to say it's criticized for being hopeful. I think it's criticized for for um, centralizing hope as the primary way by which we may, might move forward. And I think that that's, um, uh, I think the temptation towards despair when thinking about long, intractable situations is um, is almost overwhelming. And I don't think anyone who here who has... Uh, lived with events in Israel at any time in our lives have has not experienced a kind of feel a really deep despair yeah. that comes from loving a place and worrying about it. And I'm curious, um, like what you find as the source of of hope. You have a beautiful description of living in Israel during the Oslo peace talks and feeling that there, but, but that feels mo very tied to a particular historic moment that we didn't get to explore much today. But I'm curious kind of where, where you find hope, where you find hope and how hope might bring us out of despair and uh, even perhaps into progress. Yeah. Well, um, I, look, I'm lucky. I'm blessed constitutionally with, with a glass half full kind of attitude. Um, so are you really, but, uh, but, but look, I, I and I think, right, the criticism is the book and I offer little more than hope. But what I think is a little unfair about that is that my hope uh, is generated by a real thing. And I try to present what that real thing is in the last chapter of the book, which I call the case for hope. Um, and and, you know, w when you work for the New Israel Fund for as long as it, as I have, and when you've lived and been shoulder to shoulder with people on the ground who every day, without like having a lot of time for the despair that we may feel 9,000 miles away reading the paper or thinking about this once or twice in our day or week or month or year, um, people who live the reality every year, they're not given to despair. And I understand from my elders that one of the things that was characteristic of some of the great civil rights leaders is that they also didn't really have a lot of time for despair here in, in this country. And, 
And um, I think the thing that where I find hope is, is in a twofold place. First, it's from the people on the ground who, are, who, who don't have time for despair, who are working every day to build a different kind of future. And they're not an abstract, you know, and they're and and they're not. What's the Margaret Mead quote? Right. Um, you know, don't don't. I'm going to bungle it, but a small group of concerns. Yeah. Never think that that's ineffective. They're the only thing that ever changes anything. And, and that's been my experience. And, um, and so that's part one. I get hope from the people on the ground who know what they're doing and know the situation and who put, who continue pushing and sort of what I, and then I get hope from the, from the sweep of history, right? One you know, did you, has anyone read um, Taylor Branch's trilogy about Martin Luther King's life and the civil rights movement. It's amazing. And I highly recommend it. Three volumes. Uh, and, and the, your bar mitzvah gift to my son, <laughs> my bar mitzvah, our bar mitzvah gift to your son. Yeah. Exactly right. Way to go. Um, so the, the, the first volume of the book, um, by the way, the book is called, the first volume is called parting the waters. And the second one is called pillar of fire. And the third one is called at Canaan's edge. So there you go. But the first 300 pages of the first, you know, 900 page book, I'm sure Otto has read them all by now. Obviously. Um, so the first several hundred pages are devoted to people I had never heard of um, who lived lives that that ended decades or more before anything changed or happened and without whom. Right. None of the things that did change would have happened. The people who during the worst part of the failure of Reconstruction and Jim Crow soldiered on. Right. Building a movement, building an ethos of what that movement yeah. was. So I, not living to see the movement, and not happen. living to see the, yeah. the, the movement ever. Right. Um, so that so that's part one of the second part. And part two of the second part is you don't know what's going to happen without those people. Right. Without those people in 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 Taylor Branch's book and without our grantees and the activists in Israel Palestine who are working beneath the radar they're not in the headlines you don't read about them unless you get our emails right without them nothing will change but one day something will change or at least something can change nobody sees right FW de Klerk open the gates on Robben Island and Mandela workout nobody thinks that Israel's most decorated soldier is going to suddenly say we can't go on and we have to stop this no one thinks that a black guy is one day going to get elected president of the United States but these things happen and history isn't teleological right as Seamus Heaney says sometimes hope and history rhyme and and that's where my hope comes from uh well that's wonderful um I know there are uh more questions um some of which I couldn't read. Um, and I know that there's, uh, that this is never the end of the uh, discussion. Thank you so much for joining us here in the actual Commonwealth Club and in the virtual Commonwealth Club out in the world. Uh, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.